Well, memories are both a blessing and a curse. Memories are a blessing in that they remind us of the good in our past. They're a curse in that they remind us of our past. Those dark days and the greatest days are often held within the same mind and the same memories. Is there a day in your life that you remember perhaps more vividly than any other? Perhaps it was your wedding day, or a birth of a child, or some other special occasion. Perhaps it was the death of a loved one, or an unexpected accident. Is there a day in your memory that stands like a mountain peak? A place where your memories never seem to fade. You can still remember the familiar smells, the voices. Whether it was a sunny day or a starless night. You can still picture in your mind's eye as if you were still there that day. Well, friend, we come to a passage that in the mind of those who were there remembered it with vivid detail. They remembered the, the sweat and the smell and the stench of a, of a hard night's work. They remembered the smell of thousands of fish piled up on their boats. They, they remembered the feeling when they thought that all of their family business was going to sink in the bottom of the sea. One remembers... The gut-wrenching feeling it was when he would walk down the street and everyone would go to the other side. He remembered what it was like to never attend a birthday party or a wedding or a family dinner. Never to have an intimate conversation with anyone close by. Remembering what it was like to never be able to go and worship with God's people. They could remember the whispers and the cries. And though time had passed and their life had changed, their memories had not faded. God preserved them, not only for their sake, but for our own. It was, for them, the greatest day in their life. It was the day that they met Jesus. Perhaps you remember that day. Perhaps the day that you finally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, saw Jesus. That it became real to you like a light going off in your heart. All of a sudden, everything made sense. Though you had read your Bible before, though you had heard countless sermons before and attended church, 
It was as if it all made sense. It all came vividly rushing in. And there he was, your Savior. And you believed upon him, trusted in him. Do you remember the day you met Jesus? Do you remember the smells, the sounds, the, the events that surrounded it, the circumstances that perhaps God providentially brought into your life for that particular place? Do you remember when you met Jesus? And that's what I want us to think about this morning, about meeting Jesus for the first time and what kind of transformative power was made evident in our life when we met the risen and ascended Lord. Perhaps this morning you've never met Jesus before. You've heard about him. Perhaps you've seen some pictures of him. Those aren't really him. But friend, my prayer for you is through his word today, that today would be the day of salvation for you, that you might finally meet Jesus. Well, before we get to Luke chapter 5, I want to just remind us where we've been. Remember, the guiding principle as we've studied this letter is that Luke has set out with a particular purpose in mind. That purpose to write to his Christian friend, Theophilus, to give him an orderly account of what he has come to know and believe. In other words, he is, to, he is gaining, if you will, a wealth of information that his real aim and purpose is to grow his faith and trust in Jesus. Last week we considered in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. And there in that synagogue in Nazareth, Jesus unfolds the, unrolls rather, the scroll and turns to Isaiah 61, a sort of pinnacle passage in Isaiah's prophecy of God's restoration plan. It was the blueprints, if you will, of God's plan to fully and finally save His people and to bring about the kingdom of God, this, this eternal place where God's people would forever be in relationship with Him. No longer would they be burdened by sin and the, the real difficulties of life and living in this fallen world, but they would finally and fully be in fellowship again. It was a, a remaking, if you will, of Eden. Jesus stood up and read and declared that in the reading of that text, the fulfillment it had, had come for for Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah King, and He is there to declare deliverance of God's people. And then there were subsequent stories that unfolded, miraculous healings that proved that Jesus was who He said He was. And our text this morning is, is sort of part two of what we considered last week. Jesus does a number of miracles in our passage this morning to prove his identity, namely his power and authority, that Jesus has authority over the created order, that Jesus has authority to declare someone clean who was ritually and ceremonially unclean. With that in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 5, if you've not done so already. 
It's found on page 860 in the Pew Bibles. Look for that large number five, and I'm going to begin reading there. I encourage you to follow along, keep your Bibles open. I'll refer to it often. On one such occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gesseret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, Jesus asked him to put out a little from the land, and as he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. While he was in one of the cities, there, was a, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their affirmities. But Jesus would withdraw to desolate places and pray. I've summarized these verses in this way. This again is part two of good news that Jesus proclaimed in Galilee as he stood that day in the synagogue. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Where we all deserve the judgment of God, Jesus gives grace, pardon, and restoration. Luke has compiled this in an orderly way, hasn't he? In a way to demonstrate Jesus' authority. That Jesus can forgive sins. Next week we'll consider Jesus' warning to the religious leaders in a number of episodes that Jesus is presented with and confrontation with them. And, And each and every one of them, it's the similar theme. That he has authority to give grace pardon and restore. And so I want us to see this morning and embrace this good news that Jesus has power and authority for you and I to have faith that Jesus is 
who he said he is, and can do what he promised to do. And so this morning, I have two points before us, that Jesus here powerfully demonstrates his identity in these two stories. In each of them, he demonstrates his authority to overthrow sin and to restore God's people. First, in the story there in verses 1 through 11, in this miraculous catch of fish, Jesus summons sinners into service. Jesus' ministry, the gospel ministry, the ministry, as we'll see this morning, that each and every one of Jesus' disciples has entered into, is the ministry of summoning sinners into service. And then there, in the story of the cleansing of the leper there in verses 12 through 16, we see that Jesus has authority to make sinners into saints. He has the authority and the power to take a sinner and turn them into a saint. Well, follow with me as we consider these two points this morning. First, Jesus summons sinners into service. We are told that Jesus is yet again about the teaching of the gospel. He was about preaching. He was about giving himself to heralding this good news that the king had come. And here in our story, we are told on one such occasion, the crowds had grown, his popularity is amassing, people are telling others about Jesus' miraculous power to heal. And no doubt, many are coming out to be healed, to hear about this one who has done these miracles. And, and as the crowds begin to swell there on the side of the Sea of Galilee, here in our text called the Lake of Gennesaret, the same area, the Lake of Galilee, and as they press in on him, Jesus here pressed into moving his pulpit, if you will, to a boat. And he just happens providentially to come upon a number of fishermen. Now we know that he already has some sort of relationship with Simon. Last week we saw that uh, Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. And so there's some already sort of embryonic relationship beginning to build with Jesus and Simon Peter. And he tells them, let me have one of your boats. He gets into the boat and he puts out from the land and he begins to teach the people. It is a reminder to us, again, that Jesus' ministry was about preaching the gospel. And as he finished his sermon that day, he had an illustration, didn't he, just as he did last week? No doubt to illustrate the point that he was proving. Luke doesn't tell us the specifics of his sermon, but he illustrates exactly what he was talking about, and that is that he has power over even the fish of the sea. And so we're told, look there at verse 4, that he told Simon to put out into the deep the, the nets. Now Luke describes a, a quite saddening situation here. These fishermen, Simon, Peter, James, and John, were professional fishermen. Uh, this is not recreational fishing. This isn't you going out to one of the number of lakes and you know, putting your lure in the, into the water and hoping that you get something. Uh, these are men who gave their life to fishing. And uh, they fished at night, not during the day. Of course, if you, if you fish, we 
oftentimes, depending on the type of fish you're trying to fish and gather, it's, it's best to go maybe perhaps early in the morning or, or overnight. And we're told that these men have been, been out all night working and laboring, mending their nets here, kind of folding these giant nets back up to, to pack up the boats for, for t- tomorrow's work when Jesus burdens them this, with this additional task. Oh, just let's try this again. Perhaps we can get it. Now, of course, Jesus was known as a carpenter, wasn't he? What does this carpenter have anything to do with fishing? What does he know? He builds boats, not nets. He doesn't know what he's talking about or or what he's doing. Put out into the deep. Now, it's important to understand the concern that that Peter has there in verse 5. Look there with me what he says. Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. He's exhausted. Uh, We're tired. We've been at work all night. What are you talking about? Are you crazy? So again, we need to understand the tension of the text. This wasn't as simple as just casting the lure back into the water. This would have been a laborious task to get all these nets thrown back into the water and then regather them, retie them, and so forth. And so clearly he begins to question it. But notice here that his questions only last for a moment. But at your word, I will let down the nets. We see Peter growing even in these early days that he's beginning to come and understand that Jesus is more than a mere man. At your word. Jesus' word was already beginning to have a profound impact on Simon's obedience. I'll do what you say. You seem to be up to something. And sure enough, Jesus was up there. In verse 6, we are told that as these professional fishermen who've toiled all night, taken nothing, go out during the day when it wasn't the opportune time to fish, after they had, had expended all of their energy, and we are told they gather a large number of fish and that their nets were breaking. The catch was so large that Peter begins to cry out to his business partners, his business associates, James and John, and he says, come on over here and help. And they begin to haul it up, and it's so large, we are told, that it begins to sink. When Jesus goes big, he goes big, doesn't he? A friend, we see a sense of Jesus' power in that, no doubt, he was behind the, the reality that they caught nothing without him in the evening. Jesus was able to have authority. He had power and authority over the fish of the sea because he's the creator of the fish of the sea. Well, as Peter begins to reflect in the moment, we're told there in verse 8 that he throws himself down at Jesus' knees and begins to cry out to him. Look there with me at verse 8. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart. Get away from me. Get out of my boat. Get. Go. Bye. See you later. I'm not worthy to have you in my boat. Yeah, my boat's sinking. Yes, there are stinky fish all around me. But please, get out. We see a bit here in our text a reflection of even the other theophanies found in the Old Testament. When Moses was encountered with 
the God, with God in the burning bush, what did he do? <laughs> He's like, I'm getting out of here. Oh, when Isaiah saw the vision of the throne of God, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, he says this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the land of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When one's eyes are open to see the holiness of Jesus, there's only one response, and it isn't to say, what a friend we have in Jesus. It's to say that I am an unholy person. I am a sinful man, and I do not deserve to be in your presence. Peter recognized that Jesus was the eternal judge. Jesus' miracle revealed His power and authority. And so often in cultural Christianity, in our current culture of Christianity, it's just sort of, we can casually come to God. We can just kind of approach Jesus in any old way we want to approach Him. Friend, no one approached God in the Bible with such lack of respect, lack of fear and trepidation. A lack of a realization that one had come in contact with the Holy God. It does remind us, doesn't it, that service begins by confessing an awareness of personal unworthiness and sin. Jesus is going to commission these men into service in His kingdom. But before He can do that, they must first recognize they're not worthy. Friend, that is the gospel. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ tells us that we are unworthy. We receive salvation by grace alone. That means by the unmerited favor of God. It is not because we were worthy or because we we done something that, that somehow merited God's favor. Peter here on the on this day recognizes his unworthiness. And we see also that he begins to recognize, even then, who Jesus was. No longer is he master, but kurios, Lord. Begins even here to confess what he will more fully later in the gospel. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But even in the midst of his confession, Jesus here pardons him. Notice Jesus' response there in verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And also were James and John, the son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and Jesus, said to them, or said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Jesus doesn't say, It's okay, Peter. We're cool. It's all right. He says, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, for I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for your life. Now I want you to get a sense of the story here, friend. These guys were were just going about their business. It was just a regular day. They got up in the morning like they, they always did, or probably slept during the day, got up that afternoon, got their boats ready, went out all night, had a disappointing night at work, caught nothing, were ready to go home and sleep, 
frustrated and discouraged. And Jesus says, hey, guess what? I'm going to make you catchers of men. I'm going to change your profession. Fish were caught to be consumed. But these men were going to rescue people from death and destruction. They were going to be agents of reconciliation. They were going to be men and women who were going to be rescuing these fish, these men, from their peril and death by offering them the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that service embarks as one is redeployed into kingdom service. Redeployed, recommissioned to a new life. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men and women. You'll be catching people. We're told they left everything and followed Jesus. Friend, do you recognize your sinfulness before the holiness of Jesus? Seeing God in His holiness makes one aware of their own sinfulness. Jesus summons sinners. See, the emphasis in our text is on our sinfulness before the holiness of Christ. One author wrote, man never attains to the true knowledge of himself until he has contemplated the face of God and has looked at Jesus' face and beheld His glory. And after looking at the face of God, looks to himself, sinner. See, when Peter looked at Jesus, when he was on his knees there with the fish around him, he saw the holiness of God and a reflection of his own sinfulness. He beheld the holiness, and in that moment all of his sin was exposed. As we heard earlier in 1 John That Christ Jesus has come into the world to expose the darkness by bringing His light. And as Christians, we want to continually come into the light. We don't want to do, we don't want to sin in secret. We want to bring our sin into the light. We want to confess our sin. Cleansing only comes by confession. Not by hiding. Perhaps that what's stalling your sanctification is because you don't confess your sins enough. You keep covering them when Jesus is ready to cover them by His own blood. Jesus doesn't need you to fix your problems. He came to fix your problems. Confess it. Own it. And Jesus will die for it. Friend, what a glorious thought, though, in this particular passage, that Jesus commissions sinners. I mean, friend, have you ever really thought about this truth, that that you wanted to destroy Jesus' kingdom by living life in rebellion against Him? And what does Jesus do? Does He come in and say, get out of here, I'm going to kill you? No, He says, come, I'm going to commission you into my service. I'm going to make you a fisher of people. 
He puts you to work. Our text reminds us that all true disciples are fishers of men. Every one of us. If, if you claim the name of Christ, then you too are a fisher of men and women. We are all evangelists. We are all evangelists. We, we are all heralds of good news. But friend, what does this look like? What it looks like as a mom and dad sharing the gospel with your children, opening your Bible with them and reading to them, praying with them, faithfully serving them. It, it looks like a husband lovingly discipling his wife and helping her look more like Jesus and less like himself. Or a Christian opening their home to their neighbors that they might share a meal and be able to tell them about the hope that they have in Christ. It looks like us serving one another here in this gathering by praying for one another, by hearing our, the needs of the congregation and then and lifting them before God, helping one another, encouraging one another with Scripture, meeting material, physical, and spiritual need. Friend, the point remains that Jesus has power and authority to summon sinners into His service. Friend, if you have surrendered your life to Christ, you are in the King's service. You do what the King says, not what you say. As our story unfolds, it anticipates another confession like that of Peter's. But yet this time, not from an insider, not from someone who had a relationship with Jesus, but an outsider, someone who was outside of the camp of Israel. Someone who was cut off from the people of God. Jesus has authority, we see, to make sinners into saints. Look with me here at this next unfolding narrative of this cleansing of a leper. Again, Luke sets the, the occasion in, in a really no-name place. Luke is careful that we don't attribute certain miracles to particular places and then somehow miss the main idea, that being Jesus. We can become so fascinated with the geography that we miss the one who walked in such geography, the one to whom the story points. Well, regardless, we see there that a man came to Jesus, and Luke describes him as a man full of leprosy. Now, Luke is a doctor, isn't he? And here the physician reports to us the man's case. It wasn't this occasion that this man had leprosy, but that he was full of leprosy. Leprosy is a, is a quite deadly disease, a skin disease that skin begins to decay. It is a, a living man's death. It, it is really you walking around decaying, dying. You are a social outcast. And in the law, and particularly Leviticus 13 and 14, God's people were instructed that, that those who had leprosy were not allowed to be in the camp. They were to be separated outside of the camp. They were not welcome among the congregation, lest the leprosy begin to spread. When Moses' sister got leprosy, he cried out to God, please remove this sentence of death. Meaning that when you got leprosy, you died. It was over for you. 
Not only did you die physically, but you died socially. And so, this man would have known a life of utter isolation. People would have naturally walked to the other side of the street when they saw him coming. Because you see, the law told the nation of Israel, if you came in contact with a man who led leprosy, you too were to be cut off and isolated for a series of time. Jews were very careful not to touch dead bodies or people who had this disease. They were raised from a very early age, son, little Johnny, do not ever touch a dead body and don't you ever touch a man who has leprosy. In fact, tradition tells us that those who had leprosy had to, as they walked in a public space, declare that they were unclean. And for you and I, we think, well, that doesn't seem much of a big deal. We, after all, live in a somewhat scientific age. Uh, friend, you, you felt a bit of this, I believe. You know, back during COVID, you didn't have it, but you had to quarantine because you were exposed. So for 10 days, you sat at home and twiddled your thumbs and thought, why the heck am I sitting at home? I'm perfectly fine. Or perhaps you were one who had it. You kind of felt like everyone was looking at you. Or perhaps you were the one that thought, oh my gosh, does someone think I'm going to get them sick because I don't have a mask on? And that only pales into comparison to the kind of life of isolation and separation that this man faced. Never able to attend any event that was of any community nature, any corporate aspect. He, he could never worship with God's people. Completely, utterly isolated. It was used in the Bible to describe those who were separated from God because of their sin. Now to be clear, the Bible doesn't say that our sickness is a direct attributed factor to our sin, though some are, but rather a testimony to the own fallenness of this world. This world is fallen, therefore there is sickness, disease, and death. But here's a living illustration, isn't it, of, of what sin does. It separates us from God. And so this is the occasion by which this man comes. And seeing Jesus, he falls on his face, there verse 12, and began to beg him. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Now the if there is not conditional the way your mind immediately thought. In other words, it, it isn't, you know, if you have the ability or if you have the power, it's more like if you are willing to do it. I know you can do it, but will you do it? In other words, he's pleading the will of God. Is it your will to heal me? If it's not, it's all good. I understand. So he's demonstrating tremendous faith by trusting that Jesus can heal him. Now, up until this point, Jesus has healed by word. And he could have healed this man by word. He could have just spoke and said, you, you're healed. And he would have been healed. But he does something quite radical. He touches the man. Now, I want you to get a sense of this. This man has never been touched. This man doesn't know what it's like for another human being to embrace him with physical touch. A side note, we are created Physical beings to be touched. Okay, you may not like it, but it's how you were created. It's okay. 
He's walked around his entire life not being touched. Yet Jesus shows compassion by touching him. And rather than Jesus becoming unclean, the man becomes clean. And look what Luke says. There the physician gives his report. There he gives the examiner's report. What does the physician say but that he is immediately healed? Immediately. Our medicines don't work this way, do they? Even in our scientific age, even in, in the age of medicine, it takes time. But, it, but, but one touch from Jesus brings about an instantaneous healing. And rather than Jesus becoming ceremony and ritually unclean and cut off from the people of Israel, this man becomes clean. Friend, it is the gospel. He takes our uncleanness and he puts it upon himself and makes us clean. He restores what sin was lost. This is what the gospel is. It isn't that Jesus was a sinner. But as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That you become righteous. That all of your uncleanness becomes clean in an instant, in a moment, immediately. As we sing, He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. No, friend, His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me, for you. The foulest here today. You see, if you're not a Christian this morning, you might find it strange how often we talk about our mistakes, our failing, our sin, our brokenness. It's because we can be honest about ourselves. We can be honest about our weakness. We can be honest about our sinfulness. Because you see, it's not the righteous that Jesus has called. See, our Savior doesn't save righteous and holy and good people. He only saves sinners. And He does this wonderful thing. He comes into our life and He makes us saints. He makes us holy. A touch from the Holy One makes us holy and righteous and perfect. Our text reminds us of our own sinfulness, doesn't it? That sin separates us from a holy God, but that we find in Jesus a Savior. J.C. Ryle helpfully reflects on this particular text. He says this, We have in this wonderful history, this story, a lively emblem of Christ's power to heal our souls. What are we all but lepers spiritually, he says, in the sight of God? Sin is the deadly sickness by which we are all affected. It has eaten into our constitution. It has affected all of our faculties. Heart, conscience, mind, and will are all diseased by sin. 
From the sole of our foot to the crown of our head, there is no soundness about us but wounds and bruises and putrefied sores. Such is the state in which we were born. Such is the state in which we naturally live. We are in one sense dead long before we are laid in a grave. Our bodies may be healthy and active, but our souls are by nature dead in trespasses and sin. Friend, this story reminds us that no one is too far gone too deep in a hole of sin that a touch from Jesus can't make immediately clean. No one. Friend, you're not too bad. Your memories, though, may testify something quite different. Your conscience might bear witness. But friend, if you have encountered the ascended and risen Lord, you too can be clean. Believe upon Christ. It is a reminder to us all as Christians to reflect, do I have the same heart for people that Jesus had? Jesus went to the one who was a social outcast. That's who he came to save, friend. He didn't hobnob around the rich and powerful, but the poor, the dejected, the rejected. Do you have space in your heart for the least of these? Do you have a place in your evangelism for those whom this community sees as worthless? Those who walk to the opposite side of the street to avoid? It is a reminder that Jesus came to call sinners and not the righteous. He came to make sinners into saints. Our story this morning clearly and evidently displays to us the power of Christ. Jesus makes sinners into saints. I want to conclude by circling back a bit for just a second. These disciples that Jesus commissioned into service were professional fishermen with a fleet of boats. We're told that their fathers were the ones that got them into the business. They were sons of Zebedee. That's listed in the text because we are supposed to know that's important. These aren't no no name fishermen. These were well known men in that society. And they have just taken in a windfall. They have just taken in the biggest catch of their lives, worth more than a thousand days' wages in a single moment they have been propelled to the front of the line. This was their future. This was their children's future. This was their 401Ks bursting 
ships sinking. So much money, so much wealth, they didn't even know what perhaps they could spend it on. But something quite unfortunate happened to them that day too. They met Jesus. Look with me there at verse 11 again. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed Jesus. You see, what fools they were. What fools they were. That money could have been gone to good use. They could have, they could have cashed that in. They could have, they could have fed a, a hundred miles with that. They could have done so much good and still followed Jesus. No, you see, when you encounter Jesus, everything else pales into comparison. When you come encounter with the risen, ascended Lord, your life is forever changed. You'll never be the same again. Have you encountered Jesus? Have you encountered Jesus? Have you met this one who has power and authority to make even the foulest clean? The authority to call birds out of the sea for His glory. Well, friend, if you're still holding on to the things in this world, if you find your wealth a comfort to you and your prosperity in this world, then you have never met Jesus. Let's pray. Father, my prayer is that you would reveal Jesus to each and every soul in this room. That by the power of your Spirit, their eyes would behold and they would declare, depart from me, for I am a man of unclean lips.